Valentine's Day, even though that's kind of a made-up holiday uh, invented by Hallmark um, to just grab your money. But, you know, it's, it's good. It's right. Y'all are all my Valentines, all right? Um, yeah, she does. That's why I'm here. Uh, great to see everybody. My name is Davis Sweat. If I have not gotten a chance to, like, really get to know you, I would love to do that more. Um, talk to me after. Love to grab your uh, number. Sit down, have some coffee or uh, lunch or something. My treat. Uh, it's great to see everybody. Welcome to RUF. Uh, so here in RUF, we believe you are never so bad that you are beyond uh, the, the reach of God's grace. You're never so, be- so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Now, there's a reason I say this every single week. There's a reason I start every single week um, with this message. Because we need to be reminded of who we are and whose we are before we begin to even talk about what we're supposed to do or what God wants from us. Um, I was talking with a student uh, this past week And a phrase that kept popping up was, what do I do? What do I do, Davis? Like, just tell me what to do. And I think we can all relate to that, right? Like, we all feel that (laughs) a lot. We all want to know, what are we supposed to do? Whether you're depressed and you want to know, how do I stop it? How do I feel better? What do I do? Or maybe you are wanting a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You're lonely. uh, And you want to know, what do I need to do to do that, (laughs) to have that? Uh, Or you are in school right now, and you're just trying to learn, what do I do next after school? Or what do I need to study next so that I can know what to do with my life? Don't we all feel that? But notice this. We've been studying these first few chapters in Ephesians. And tonight we're going, to be, we're going to start studying chapter three. And notice that Paul doesn't give you anything to do for these whole first three chapters. A whole three chapters where Paul does not give you one thing to do. Actually, the only imperative in the entire three chapters is the word remember. So I guess if he tells you one thing to do, it's to remember. In 2 verse 11. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from. Remember what Jesus has done. Uh, Remember his grace. It's sort of unsettling to us uh, because we want to have some sort of thing that we can do to make our lives better. Like, what can we do? It's part of our nature. We want to fix ourselves. But Paul recognizes the heart of the gospel, and hear this, is that you actually can't do anything. In fact, you need to remember what you can't do. Here's a couple of grammar words. I know y'all are outside of class right now. It's supposed to be a time of rest, right? But here's a couple of grammar words that I want you to remember. Indicative and imperative. Uh, I know y'all have probably studied that before, but indicatives are statements or facts. They're not commands for us to do. So, for instance, my son is named Wynn. And so, Wynn is my son. That's an an indicative statement, right? That can't change. 
It's a fact, no matter what he does. But then the statement, when, you must obey me. (laughs) That's an imperative. Now, him being my son comes before that. He's my son, so therefore obey me. Uh, But it's something, it's only because of the indicative that he's my son. You can't tell him to obey you. He's not your son, unless you're babysitting him, which I tell him to always obey you then, right? Um, But know know this, you are God's child. That's an indicative. Therefore, listen to what he says. Listen to what he tells you to do. But understand the order. Don't get it backwards because we often put the imperative before the indicative, which actually changes everything. Sometimes we think we must do this in order that we can be loved by God. Or we have to do this to to really be his child, to really belong to him, for him to accept us. That's backwards. It's a legalistic understanding of the gospel. So Paul, for three chapters in Ephesians, he tells us thoroughly all of these indicatives so that we will be able to understand how we do these imperatives that are all going to be in the, in the future weeks of so four through six, chapter four through six. So at the beginning of chapter three, Paul starts a sentence and then he sort of pauses. And you can actually see it right there in your uh, sheet. It's that dash at the end of verse one. Uh, and he doesn't finish the sentence. He starts uh, for this reason, and he doesn't pick that back up until verse 14, which starts with the exact same statement. And so in this whole section, it's as if Paul is reciting out loud all of these indicatives that he knows about himself and others. It's like he goes on a tangent. Because to him, um, to move into the imperative of evangelism and reaching the Gentiles with the gospel, which is what he's about to move into, it's as if he's letting us see inside his mind to what truly motivates him to do that. And it's not guilt and it's not shame, which often motivates us. So let's read together Ephesians 3. And this is verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight in the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray together.
Dear God, thank you for this time that we can sit and hear from you. That these words that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, they impact us today. That we can actually know you through them. That we can hear from you. I pray that you would meet us here tonight. Uh, That we would come to understand your love, understand who you are, and that would motivate us to move and to do your will. It's in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so as, um, as I mentioned last week, one of the themes of Ephesians is Paul's burden. He has this burden to make what he calls the mystery of the gospel revealed. Uh, Paul was called to take the message of the gospel to all the other people groups of the nations uh, called the Gentiles. Now, there are ways that we are like Paul and ways that we are not like Paul here. All right? So how are we not like Paul? Um, Well, Paul was an an apostle. So what does that mean? It says in verse 5 that the mystery has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And what Paul is pointing to is a person whom God specifically commissioned at the beginning of the church to establish the early church and form the Bible. That the words we read here, they are from the apostle, but they are from God. So if someone comes to you today and says that they have, you know, they've been given this special message from God to give to you specifically that you can't get from the Bible, run away. Run. I'm serious. God's word is sufficient. That's what Paul is pointing to here. And he used Paul and others in those times to establish the Bible so that we don't have to have another person telling us something the Bible does not tell us to know God. We don't, we don't have apostles and prophets today in that sense. If someone tells you differently, point them to this passage. And then run away. <laughs> um, now, how are we similar to Paul? Well, we are similar to Paul in that we receive the same message that Paul received from Christ. And he gives to us. This is what he's passing along to us. And what that does is it fills up us with motivation that was filling Paul. It's amazing that all of the motivation that Paul has to share the gospel is from the same source that you and I receive. This is why evangelism encompassed everything Paul did. That it was just part of who he was after this. And how we also actually become people who share the gospel, who are evangelists. That's how we share with Paul. That's our commonality with him. Now, here's, if I had to guess, when I say the word evangelism, there's probably several responses in here that sort of come up. Some of you who have grown up in the church or actively seeking to follow Christ on campus, uh, there's guilt that comes up with this word. Probably about all the ways you don't tell people about Jesus or all the ways, uh, all the fears potentially that hold you back from that. That often comes up when you say a word like this, especially in Christian circles. And to you, I think it's important to see that guilt is often a very strong motivator to do things. But if you look in the Bible, there is not one person that shares the gospel with somebody from a guilt motivation. 
not one, or that they're shamed of themselves and feel like this is something they just have to do. There's not one. And if no one in the Bible is ever motivated by guilt or shame into sharing the gospel with others, because quote unquote, it's just something you have to do, then you shouldn't be either. There's different motivation for it. And we're about to get there. But on the other hand, some of you, you may hear the word evangelism or evangelists, and maybe some of you here have had really bad experiences with people trying to evangelize you, you know, or or quote unquote, save you. You know, maybe uh, by trying to get you to say something you don't want to say or have a conversation you don't really want to have, or maybe manipulate you into a certain decision, or maybe you think about some guys Um, who potentially, um, you know, walk around and and tell you uh, that you need to be ashamed of yourself or you're guilty of something. And know that your frustration and irritation, um, maybe that's warranted. But here's what I ask you. What if you're actually missing out on a really important message because of the messenger? Perhaps whether you are here and you are a Christian or aren't a Christian or however you feel about evangelism. And we can talk more about that after here. We really need to understand what motivated Paul and his mission to share the gospel. So here's three things I believe that Paul shares with us, kind of opens up his heart and and shows us from this passage and his heart and motivation to take the gospel to Gentiles. And so, in other words, what are the indicatives that we really need in order to be motivated to respond to the gospel through evangelism? Uh, And so number one is the story. The story. So think for a second of what y'all most enjoy sharing and hearing. Like, what do you do on a regular basis with your friends? I think often it's share stories like whether it's a, a goofy thing that happened over the weekend or, um, or whether it's even experiencing like a good movie that you, you share an interest with or, or watching a movie together or sharing about your life, things that have happened, passions you have, that a majority of the time what really piques our interests are stories. J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of Lord of the Rings, he talked about how the heart of the universe was story. And therefore, at the heart of every human being, a story. And so think about the things that really grip you. They take place within a story. It's sometimes why when I like see y'all kind of drifting off a little bit, you know, heads bobbing. I'll kind of be like, all right, hey, listen to this story. Like, come back, come back. Like, let me tell you about this, right? Because it grips you. Because stories shape us. Or think about Jesus in the Gospels. There's passage after passage of Jesus actually sharing stories called parables. And what they do is grip the people that he's telling them to. And he points them to something. And notice that what Paul is talking about in Ephesians, what he calls the mystery made known. It's not just something like you would read out of a textbook. It's not just a set of propositions or facts Um, Paul is sharing the greatest story ever. He's sharing a story. 
And here's the crazy thing that really gets Paul going. You are included in it. He says in verse six, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, meaning that they are a part of this story. So when you think about sharing the gospel, what, I mean, what motivates you to share all those other stories about your lives to others? Or what motivates you to just want to listen to other people's stories? Now think about the grand story that you are in. The story that God includes you in. His grand narrative. The story of the gospel. Do you actually know that? Do you believe that? Does that actually excite you? It's what excited Paul and completely shifted his entire life. So, number two, the characters. So Paul is overcome with the excitement of the story he's a part of, but also he recognizes the characters in the story. And so in particular, he recognizes his own character. He says in verse eight, I am the least of all the saints, which in the Greek is a word that Paul actually invented. And here's what it literally comes out to, lesser of the least. It actually makes no sense. How can you be less than even the least? But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that he's even lesser than the least of us. Now, in our culture, we hear someone say, you know, they're the least of a person, you know, and, and we say, you know, no, cheer up, have confidence, have self-esteem. And so sometimes we think of it as a bad thing. But also Paul says this in verse 12, he says he's the least of these. But in verse 12, he says we have boldness and confidence. Now, wait a second. How can someone who considers themselves lesser than the least have boldness and confidence? That seems almost counterintuitive, but that's only if you don't understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, the characters that God chooses to use are the least likely people. Paul was a persecutor of Gentiles and probably hated them more than anyone else at that time. And yet God chooses him and he changes him to be the one who you could arguably say loved the Gentiles more than anyone else in that time that the gospel forces us to recognize who we really are and how least we really are. And that motivates us to have boldness and confidence because it means that God can and does use anyone. Regardless of background, status, gender, race, history, sin, God uses those who least deserve it. You don't feel qualified? Let that be your confidence and boldness to share the gospel that God uses unqualified people. Like you feel scared and fearful of what others will think of you. Let that be your confidence and boldness to know that God uses fearful and insecure people. Jesus died for the unqualified, scared, and fearful. A quote in the Chronicles of Narnia that comes to mind when I think of this, uh, it says um, that we are of the daughters of Eve and the sons of Adam. And that is both honor enough to erect our head, erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on the earth. Be content. These are the characters of the story. But finally, Paul, he's not just motivated because of the overall story or the, his understanding of characters, understanding of himself. But here's what Paul rejoices in. He rejoices in the climax the climax of the story. 
So we just had the Super Bowl this past Sunday. It's that moment when I see the heads bobbing. So I'm like, okay, Super Bowl. Guys, remember the Super Bowl last Sunday? Uh, so we just had the Super Bowl this past Sunday. But a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was the big Sunday night NFL game versus the Bills and the Bengals. And two of the best teams in the league with the best players in the league were going at it. So all week it was, it was talked about who would win out, who was better, um, how they would come to destroy the other team, you know, take the victory. And then within the first couple of plays of the game, one of the Bills players, DeMar Hamlin's heart stopped. I don't know if y'all saw this. His heart stopped and he passes out and he stops breathing and he's not moving in the middle of the game. He was laying on the ground without moving as paramedics and team doctors rushed out to the field. And in that moment, you saw both Bengals and Bills players huddled together, praying. And you saw players from both sides hugging each other, embracing each other, and crying. The game stopped and the players were sent home. The rivalry was over that night. Why? Because Damar Hamlin almost died. His heart stopped. And in that moment, it divided their wall of hostility. They were all one in that moment. This is the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is the climax of the story. When it comes to the climax of the story and Paul's ultimate motivation for mo- motive for evangelism, the rivalry is over. Our common enemy of sin and death has been fully defeated. This means we are one with one another because of him. This is Paul's plea to the Ephesians. He says in Galatians that there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are all one. Understand that you are united in the death of Jesus. The rivalry is over. We are one community, not because of what team you're on or what you yourself provides, but because of one man who divided the wall of hostility and brought us together regardless of background. And now that motivates us. That's the indicative that motivates us. It's that you can actually move towards every single person. You can move towards every single person and know that Christ brought down the dividing wall of hostility. It's gone. It means that every single person on campus is actually, you can engage and you can actually invite into this community because Christ divided the wall of hostility. Let that be your motivation for evangelism much more than guilt and shame that often motivates us. And if you're here tonight and you are not fully convinced that Jesus has brought down that wall of hostility or that what he's done has actually accomplished that, let this be motivation to move even closer into this community. Come and find out each week. Be with us. Understand why Christ Church is the single greatest and most powerful place for you to experience true love. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this time. Thank you for, um, thank you for what you've done. 
Thank you for moving towards us. Your enemies. People who rebelled against you, who were hostile towards you. You continued to move towards. Continued to love. And yet you still do. Thank you for Jesus. It's in Christ's name, amen.